Brick Moon Fiction presents Cold Root by Eli Edelson, narrated by Nicholas Thurkettle. The patrol car was hot, a sickly radiator-type heat that made Luke Danforth sweat beneath his coarse brown police jacket. If he had been driving alone, he'd have cracked his window open to the blizzard outside that was quickly turning from gray to black as they made their way up into the mountains. But alone he was not. Detective Janet McAvoy sat shotgun, soaking up the heat like a lizard as she cozily studied the cloudburst outside, as if it was something other than incomprehensible. False comfort, Luke thought, to be in a car on winding roads forty miles from town with hard weather all around and feel any kind of safe. But he was just a deputy, an unlucky deputy, the way he figured it. It had been earlier that afternoon, coming off a graveyard shift. Luke was looking forward to clocking out and burning through that bag of stale weed Bronwyn had left behind when she ditched him. She was probably swimming in the cold Pacific waters of California by now. That's what Luke had been thinking about when he spotted Margot Wellickson and her ten-year-old son Wesley on the side of the road. Her Buick had crashed through a snowbank and right into a Rocky Mountain maple, snapped it clean in half onto the road. Clay-colored sap festooned the metal grill, as if the car had just tore into a fresh quarry. Margot was covered in blood, far too much for it to be her own, with her still breathing as she was, deep panicked breaths that wouldn't quit. She was standing outside the car, shivering so hard she looked like a hummingbird. Little Wesley held her hand as if to keep her from flying away. He seemed much more aware of Luke's presence as the patrol car pulled up with the blues flashing. After many moments of sensitively toned ma'ams and are you injured, she finally snapped out of her shock and turned her head to him. It was Margot's eyes, not the browning blood all over her chest, that put a tremor in Luke Danforth's body, like a needle to the spine. Unlucky. Fucking indeed, Luke thought. After he'd gotten them to the hospital and they'd warmed out of near hypothermia, Margot started talking. Rapid fire, teeth clacking, hands shaking. Quadruple homicide, it sounded like. Her husband, the perpetrator, and the final victim by his own hand in the end. Took some gentle coaxing for the rest of the details, but by the time Detective McAvoy arrived at the hospital, there was a fuller picture coming into focus. The Wellickson family had inherited a dilapidated estate up near Talmahead Park, past the foothills. One must travel through thick, old-growth forests until the elevation gets too high and thins everything down. It was so far out into the wilderness that technically it was not part of Luke's police department's jurisdiction. But they were the closest ones, so it was their responsibility. Unlucky. That's one way to put it. The Talmahead Estate, or the Cold Root House, as Margot kept calling it, had been passed down to the husband, Vern, by some distant relation who'd never even been to the place himself. The Wellicksons set out for a winter vacation, very much against Margot's inclination, it seemed to Luke, with a nanny and a couple of hired hands to fix the place up. About a week into the ordeal, in the middle of the night, apparently, Vern snapped. He threw the nanny out of a top-floor window with a noose around her neck. Then he laid some sort of grisly trap that killed one of the workers. Margot didn't explain what exactly happened to him. But both she and Wesley then witnessed Vern kill the other worker with an axe before coming after them. She choked up trying to recount the next bit. Just as she started breaking down, Wesley interjected as if to spare her. Luke couldn't believe the stillness of the boy's voice the steady sureness in the face of everything that had just gone down. Detective McAvoy, who had joined them at this point, was cool as ever. 
Her eyes rested on Margot, even as Wesley took up the narrative. Seen it all, or so McAvoy liked to claim. Anyways, Vern Wellickson had chased them all throughout the house until they ingeniously trapped him in the safe room, a dingy basement nook with an actual iron lockbox. Just then, in the rehashing, Margot found the strength to speak again and held Wesley close to her. Through shaky whispers, she told Luke and McAvoy that moments after they trapped the murderous father behind the big triple-locked door, they heard him scream. It was rageful at first, until it suddenly turned to pain and agony. Margot didn't know what was happening inside the safe room, but blood started leaching out from beneath the door. And then her husband's screaming stopped. Before Margot could even take a breath, McAvoy had asked, did your husband have any history of violent or aggressive behavior? He did not, apparently. And after ten minutes of unforgiving inquiry, McAvoy stepped out. Just as Luke was going to join her, Margot had grabbed his wrist. Somehow her grip had been strong enough to cut off circulation to his hand, while at the same time she shook and vibrated as if an electric current was running through the poor woman's body. She whispered, almost angrily, it wasn't my husband that did this. There's a force that lives in that wretched house. Then it lived in him, took him over. Go, and you'll see. Luke did indeed go and see, on McAvoy's orders. He knew the roads to Talmahead better than anyone, and besides, he had been the one to pick the mother and son up in the first place. The detective reasoned, didn't he want to see this through? No, in fact, he would have been happy with the bag of stale weed and a 14-hour nap, Luke thought, as he drove up the steep highway through the evening blizzard, leading the truck behind them that carried Officer Gilad and Frank Abrama, their forensics guy. She tell you Mr. Wellickson was possessed? It was the first time Detective McAvoy had spoken since they began the drive over an hour ago. She phrased it like an innocent question. Her eyes were still admiring the snowfall outside. Luke hazarded a response. Yeah, she did. McAvoy nodded, and silence ensued again. Luke felt he needed to expound in some vague attempt to defend Margot, so he added, She said there was something about the house made him act funny. Funny? she asked incredulously. You call a murdering rampage acting funny? Yeah, that's a real hardy fucking har, Danforth. Luke tried to think of a response, but decided to keep his mouth shut. McAvoy turned and looked at him, vaguely apologetic. We don't have much to go off here, and we don't know what we're walking into, is all I'm saying. That's why I didn't want to wait for the storm to pass. We don't have time to waste when there's an active crime scene vulnerable to the elements. What are you saying? There's something we're missing here? Won't know what we're missing until we're there. Another fifty minutes of slow going finally got them to the cold root house, just as darkness swept over that half of Mount Talmahead. They put their searchlights on out the window to view the house as they rolled down the driveway. Through the thick flurry, there was the outline of a three-story heap of old wood slats, sagging dead moss roof, and dripping thin windows from another era. It wasn't the architecture that concerned Luke, though. He searched the top floor area with the light until he found her, a nanny named Arya. She hung by some sort of thin wire a few feet down from a shattered window, maybe twenty feet off the ground. Her body had turned in such a way that her back was to the officers, face pushed up shyly against the wall. Luke could make out small icicles lining her clothes, dangling off her bare feet. She must have frozen to the house. 
because the corpse didn't sway despite the wind. Luke hoped her neck had broke cleanly, that she didn't feel a thing. As everyone stepped out of the cars and approached, it was apparent that protruding from her body were shards of glass that almost seemed to complement the icicles. She had gone through the window badly, maybe pushed into it more than once. Psychopathic fuck, Luke muttered into the wind. McAvoy spoke loudly over the wind. Danforth, do a quick pass of the perimeter. Moment your fingers start to numb, join us inside. Luke wasn't sure if she had heard his little outburst, but he certainly felt like he was being punished for something. This whole day and night had been a punishment, sent to him on the wings of some demon. How did he end up here? Why did a seemingly normal man decide to murder everyone in sight? The dark intentions of the world were not yet known, the young man felt, but they were inevitable. Luke took a maglite and split off from the group as they headed through the front door, beneath the dangling feet of the corpse above. The knee-high snow and density of young pines made for rough going as he trudged his way around the outside of the mansion. Rounding the corner, the land opened up to a sprawling backyard carved right into the mountainside. Luke noticed the lights coming on inside the house as the team made their way through it. Suddenly, a chandelier light from the second floor shone down dimly across the empty field in a kaleidoscopic pattern. Just beyond the reach of the light, the silhouette of an ancient tire swing could be seen casually vacillating at the edge of the tree line. There was something stuffed into the tire. Even under the power of the maglite, Luke had trouble making it out clearly. He rushed toward it, and just as it came into view, the hidden deadfall gave way under his heavy boots and Luke disappeared beneath the frozen ground. But he didn't die. Instinctively, he splayed his arms and legs out like a starfish looking to stop his fall, and stopped it was at the points of roughly carved stakes protruding from the walls, one through each hand. Not cleanly, though, per se, but far enough that his body stopped midair and thudded against the dirt wall. There weren't just stakes coming out of the walls. Taller spikes lined the bottom of the pit as well, in the style of the bear traps of old. Luke hung by his bleeding palms above the spears, like a climber who'd been revenged upon by the mountain he so casually perforated with pitons. Before the immensity of pain set in his mind, Luke processed what he'd seen in the tire swing. A dead, hacked-up dog. Sizable one, too. Very publicly arranged to catch your eye as it swung in the tire. Luke was just working his way towards wondering why neither Margot nor Wesley had ever mentioned their poor dog when that agony in his hands caught up to him. He screamed and tried not to fall and screamed some more until finally he vomited at least having the good sense to angle his head away and downwards. It was then he spotted the corpse at the bottom of the deadfall. The worker, whose name had been Moses, had spears impaling him in all the worst places, not least of which was through his left eye. Then Moses blinked with his good eye and laughed and blew a kiss towards Luke. His voice wheezed with all the anger of a cattle bolt pistol's pneumatic hiss. The mountain is hungry, Luke. You're already in its maw. Yet there is a bargain to be had. Luke tried to pretend this was some trick of Payne's hallucination. He had stopped breathing in the same way breathing feels impossible in a drowning dream. After not responding for a few moments, the stakes in his hands started to suck into the frozen wall of dirt, inching him ever closer to joining Moses. 
Luke found his breath as he screamed again, and then asked about the bargain. Detective Janet McAvoy thought she heard something in the distance as she headed down the basement steps with Officer Gillot close in tow, but she couldn't be sure. The house had been practically anechoic since they walked in. It hadn't taken them long to find the first body, the hired hand who'd been ended with an axe. Frank was off examining him. It had struck Janet as strange how many strikes had been needed, how superficial many of the cuts were. If it was the husband who did this, he was weak or scared. Odd, to say the least, Janet thought as they entered the sprawling, tiled basement. Even with the lights on, it was hard to navigate the labyrinth of junk and tilting shelves. Past broken skis, moldered stuffed animals from bygone eras, past family portrait paintings scarred and shrunken, past infinite webs with spiders and their prey both dead. Janet finally arrived at the vaulted door to the safe room. Gilad instinctively drew his pistol, and Janet didn't disapprove. She knew exactly how he felt. Evil happened all over this house, and she could sense it had its finale right here. But what happened exactly? She pulled on the door, and though it lurched, it quickly became apparent it was not going to open. The officer cleared his throat before he said, Locked from the inside? Appears that way. Detective, that don't make any sense. I thought the wife trapped the guy inside, locked him in so they could escape. That's the story we got, officer. A liar is a liar is a liar. McAvoy struggled not to say out loud, because she knew if she shined a light on how things weren't adding up in this awful place, Gilot might not respond well. There was a strange warm breeze passing by Janet's ankle. She put her hand close to the floor, and sure enough, there was a consistent sort of airstream pouring away from the safe room, from beneath a series of shelves stacked against one another. Fuck, Janet said aloud as she realized what she'd need to do next. Officer, stand by the door and stay sharp. I'll be right back. He muttered a confused affirmative as Janet began to crawl underneath the shelving, following the warm air like a bloodhound. After a few feet, she was in total darkness, which didn't help with the mounting claustrophobic feeling, but she knew she was getting closer. Then there was the sound of thump, thump from somewhere, somewhere above. The first floor? It was hard to tell with a veritable metric ton of junk directly above her on all sides. Officer, you hear that? No response. What did it sound like? Boots stomping, or maybe an object falling. Whatever it was, best not to stay in this vulnerable position any longer. Janet's adrenaline spiked just a bit as she picked up the pace, full-on army crawling until she finally hit the source of the heat. It was a gaping hole in the back wall of the safe room. Light was pouring out from inside. She noticed there was blood around the hole, and now on her hands. Janet took a breath and forced herself through, wriggling. Her pants tore in places around her hips, and she knew she'd cut herself on the jagged edges of the gap. Inside, a fluorescent brightness, and a man staring at her. Barely alive, he lay up against the wall a few feet away, little stab wounds all across his abdomen. There was no axe, no weapons at all anywhere in the place. Janet rushed to him to cover his wounds, but before she could touch him, he whispered, with all the strength left in his body, You need to leave this place. It'll only let you leave if you pay a price. Are you Vern Wellickson? What happened here? I don't 
blame them. They did what they needed to survive. Thought I'd be safe in here. But my little Wesley, smart boy, found the way in. A smile struggled to form at Vern's lips. It's a cruel miracle he'd survived this long, Janet thought. Janet nearly jumped a foot in the air at the sound of Officer Gillot screaming right on the other side of the door before a series of gunshots cut him off. Some of the bullets clanged off the metal vault wall. The mountain has already found its champion, it seems. Vern looked into her eyes just as his life passed out of his body. The ground shook then, ever so slightly, a tremble as the land devoured his soul. Terror and anger flooded Janet's veins before she then recognized the report of the gun on the other side of the vault. Standard department issue. Luke, that you? she shouted, trying to keep a neutral tone to her voice. I'm sorry, detective. I have to do this. They said every one of them. Are you telling me everyone else is dead? The mountain has them now. It'll have you soon and then it'll all be done. I promise I'll make it quick. If you don't come out, I'll have to burn the house down with you in it. After a moment's silence, Luke felt inclined to add, or you could end it yourself. The mountain doesn't care. Janet quickly surveyed the room she was in. Barren, a blood-covered floor, a big rusted lockbox. A lonely place to die, essentially. Officer Luke Danforth was surprised when, only a minute after giving his ultimatum, the vault door started to shift and turn with life. He drew his pistol, ready to be done with it, ready to start his new life. His hands, both perforated from the stakes earlier, flared with pain, but he felt some supernatural strength flowing through him, allowing him to overpower his torn ligaments and bent bones. Out of the shadows of the safe room, a figure lurched forwards and Luke opened fire. Three rapid shots and the body slammed to the floor. Before it even hit the ground, Luke knew it wasn't McAvoy. The gunfire had illuminated a dead man's face. Poor old Vern Wellickson. Luke ran into the safe room and searched for the light switch. After some blind grappling with Luke ready to open fire on anything at any moment, he clicked it, and the harsh fluorescence filled up a totally empty room. As Luke's eyes were drawn to a rusted hole in the corner, now jammed closed with the old lockbox, the door swung shut behind him. Detective Janet McAvoy allowed herself a moment of perverse pleasure in having bested the bastard. She secured the external lock and shouted through the door, You're trapped, Danforth. Fuck all knows what happened to you, but you're not going anywhere. McAvoy stopped then as a voice rumbled around her. It sounded like rock scraping on bone. Leave this place. You are free. At first it was as if it emanated from the very walls of the place. But then McAvoy noticed movement in the corner of her eye. Vern was slowly getting to his feet, blood flowing from old and new wounds alike. He took a purposeful step towards her, stepping over Officer Gillot's corpse. Leave before we feast upon you, too. McAvoy had seen some things in her life. Murder-suicides, decomposed hermits, fire-roasted flesh. But looking into Vern's eyes, or really what now resided behind those eyes, 
it was all forgotten. Her grisly slate was wiped clean in an instant as Janet ran and ran and lunged up the stairs away from that place. She was leaving, reborn into the world, and thankful for it. As she ran towards the cold root house's front door, she heard Luke's pistol, likely placed directly under his own chin, fire a single shot. It was a punctuation point to the half-formed thoughts attempting to form a sentence in Janet's mind as she fled. Return. Forget. Never. Mountain. No one. Eli Edelson's passion for writing began in the form of flash fiction while studying English at the University of Chicago. The school awarded him the Napier-Wilt Prize for Finest Creative Thesis, and his collection of stories was subsequently published in Euphony Literary Journal. After working in the New York City film scene for a few years, Eli moved to Los Angeles to pursue TV writing. He worked as a writer's assistant in drama showrooms on Netflix and TNT before becoming a staff writer on Freeform's new show Motherland, Fort Salem. His other recent work includes a digital scripted series and two feature screenplays commissioned by independent producers, as well as video essays for the digital channel Gamma Ray and freelance podcast episodes for Parcast and Brick Moon Fiction. In addition to developing one-hour drama TV, he has also developed a mixed-media docu-series that explores mental health. Eli's goal is to always tackle new ways to structure and present unique stories that resonate with a wide audience through indelible characters. This has been a production of the Brick Moon Fiction Podcast. If you like what you hear, please give us a review on Apple Podcasts as it helps us find a bigger audience. For more information on Brick Moon and special offers, sign up for the Brick Moon Fiction newsletter at brickmoonfiction.com. Thank you for listening.